This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. My name is Elizabeth Kramer from the University of New South Wales and I'm here today with a special guest, Dr. Lailatul Vitria. For most Indonesians, the choice to move overseas as a foreign overseas worker, known as Tenaga Kerja Indonesia, TKI, is viewed primarily as an economic one. Working in countries such as Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, or further afield in the Middle East is perceived to offer possibilities beyond what they might hope for back home. The Indonesian government itself recognizes the crucial role played by overseas migrant workers, with the World Bank estimating in 2016 that over 8.9 billion US dollars flowed back to Indonesia via remittances. However, it's limiting to view the experiences that overseas workers have purely in terms of economics. There are, of course, ongoing identity negotiations that mirror the complexities of being in a new and different land, particularly when it comes to religion and gendered expectations. My guest today, Dr. Fitria, has researched and published on the migrant worker experience through an intersectional lens, focusing particularly on how gender and religion shaped the lived experiences of women working overseas. She gained her PhD from the University of Notre Dame's Department of Theology, and she's an assistant professor of interreligious education at the Claremont School of Theology in California. And at this moment, she is also a visiting professor at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. So Lily, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come to your podcast, Liz. So I want to start with a very basic question here. Can you tell me what originally drew you to researching migrant workers overseas from Indonesia and particularly in terms of religion and that combination of, of experience that they have as they go overseas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's um. That's an interesting question um, because first, um, I've always been interested in religion, right? Uh, I come from a very religious family in Indonesia. So uh, I grew up in uh, Indonesian Pesantren. I, I spent most of my youth time there. And uh, when I did my master's degree uh, at the University of Notre Dame, I wrote a, an MA thesis on interreligious reconciliation in the island of Ambon in Maluku. So from there, um, my interest in religion just uh, growing and I decided to do a PhD in theology uh, at Notre Dame. And at that moment, I found that actually there is something called feminist theologies, uh, both in Christianity and also in Islam. And so um, I began my journey and my training uh, in theology department. Um, my focus is on comparative feminist theologies between Muslim and Christian. And then when it comes for me to think about um, what to write as my dissertation project, one thing that directly comes to mind 
is this conversation that I had years ago with uh, my cousin. So uh, I have a cousin who is a TKI, uh, who is currently working in Taiwan. And she has been working there for decades. Um, she started work there as a migrant domestic worker at the age of 18 years old. And she is still working there up to today. And one day when I was, you know, the conversation happened when I was like 15 years old or something. She was in one of her vacation. Uh, she came back home to uh, her village in East Java. And then... At that time, um, I asked her, why do you uh, work so far in Taiwan? Why do you decide to do that? Why don't you just work here? And she said, well, um, there is no opportunity here in my village uh, to, to work and I cannot uh, earn money. Um, I have to uh, earn money for my uh, family, for my children. Because at that time, she was just divorced from uh, her first husband. And uh, that left her to take care of their two children. So then I said, well, but I read all of this news about, um, you know, TKI um, being abused and being beaten up by their employers. Aren't you afraid of that? And then she said, well, that is a fate, right? She said, that is a fate. And as for me, just please pray for me that I will be able to go back home to Indonesia every time with a, uh, with uh, an intact body. In Javanese, uh, she said, "moleh kurang uh, ora kurang opo opo," which means, um, "Let me uh, pray for me so that I can go back home uh, without, uh, you know, without any wound or without any, you know, and and going back home alive, right?" And um, somehow that conversation stays with me, and when. I think about, um, you know, my interest in feminist theologies, both in Islam and Christianity, also their applications and their lived practice uh, within our lives. That's what comes up to my mind. So for me, this project is not only an academic interest. This is something that's really dear and near to my heart. I have, like what I mentioned before, I have cousins who work as migrant domestic workers. I have lots of, you know, childhood classmates from my elementary schools who also work as migrant domestic workers. Some of them are, were abused by their employers. In addition to academic interests, this project for me is also very personal. Of course, um, as in feminist paradigm, we say personal is political, right? So then this is also the way I, I approach uh, this project. This is not only about my academic career, not only about my academic interests, but also I'm doing it for the liberation of the people that I love. That's such a fascinating perspective to hear. And I think too, having that personal connection and having that passion behind your research uh, can also be very uh, motivating when you're an academic as well, mm -hmm. um, particularly as you navigate some of the more bureaucratic aspects <laughs> of academia. <laughs> but I'd like to ask you uh, to, to describe in a little bit more detail the kinds of research that you've done and that focus, especially in relation to, um, well, I was going to ask specifically in relation to, to Muslim women, but 
you study women from lots of different religious backgrounds, so maybe you might want to make a comment on other religions as well. But how does the relationship between religion and identity change or morph when people go overseas to work in in often quite alien and quite different environments to what they used to back in, in Indonesia? What kind of patterns did you observe in your research through talking to people who've had that lived experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, thank you. So my research project actually involves uh, Muslim and Christian migrant domestic workers, right? So within my uh, project, there are 40 active and inactive uh, migrant domestic workers from Indonesia who have been working in Singapore or still working in Singapore uh, that become participants in my research projects. And of course, there are differences uh, between the Muslim women and also Christian women who who have these experiences. But then there are also um, you know, similar patterns that I noticed uh, in, in, in the ways they try to interpret and also practice their religious teachings while being migrant domestic workers in Singapore. The first of this pattern is what I called as the materialization of personal relationships with God. So if we, you know, mostly academics, when we talk about, you know, religion and religious traditions, especially theology, right? It seems like it's very abstract. It seems like it's, oh, it's theory about God. And it doesn't necessarily connect uh, to the daily life of people. But then what I see from the lives of this woman is that for them, the way they understand their relationship with God is exactly through the lenses of struggles that they have every day. For example, one Christian woman uh, who has been migrant domestic workers in Singapore for two decades uh, mentioned to me about one of her experience uh, being abused by her employer. And then she escaped, uh, she ran away from the employer's house at that time. And she told me that in that process of her running away from the employer's house to a shelter, she literally feels God's hand holding her and guiding her running away from that and, uh, you know, to the safe place, right? So uh, these kind of stories are abound. There are a lot of stories like this, both in the Christian and also Muslim groups. And uh, this is what I mentioned as the materialization of personal relationship with God, right? For them, you know, talking about God is not talking about scripture. It's not talking about, you know, religious teachings that come from historical past. It is something that happened at that time, at the moment where they are in danger. So that's, that's the first uh, patterns that I see. The second pattern that I see, there is also the, uh, you know, a specific way in which transnational care work doubled the burden of this woman. So, uh, you know, especially in, in probably in development studies or, um, you know, liberal feminism, we will see a lot of claims that if women can get access to public space and work in public space, then there is empowerment, right? But what I see with this woman, that is not the case. They work in public sector, right? They work in the industry of care work. But then, you know, in in their daily lives, after they do their their job, 
after they're cleaning the employer's house in the night they would still call back home to indonesia just to check whether their kids are doing their homework meaning the domestic responsibilities that they have as women in indonesia is not being eliminated by their public sector work meaning that even though they have this job they have this profession they are actually the backbone of their family in terms of financial sources but still they are also still doing the care work the nurturing of the children back in indonesia so there is that double burden of of you know um domestic work and care work that they're they're bringing here and you can imagine too particularly if they're in a space where they're looking after children in singapore it's almost like they've got two sets of families that they're responsible for and i and i can imagine that the that they also develop a bond with with the children that they're looking after in overseas mm-hmm. but you know they have that tie back home so you can imagine if you're a parent it's like double the yeah. stress of yes. of, of yeah. being responsible for for these young um young people i want to turn now to um you've written an article about islamic feminism so can you give us a brief overview of of why you felt it was important to to call out this focus on headscarves and and its relationship to islamic feminism i think for people maybe looking in from the outside it's a very visible indicator of somebody's identity and somebody's religion but perhaps you have some thoughts on on how useful that is or or how um how we can sort of challenge that assumption a little bit mhm yeah thank you liz um that's a very important question because you know islamic feminism as a field of study comes from the context of european and american academia right people like amina wadud um asma barlas all of those you know core scholars of islamic feminism they are actually american scholars or european scholars right so then it's uh, actually it's um inevitable for islamic feminism to bring up focus that is relevant uh, in the lives of muslim women in europe and in america but then i do think that after several decades of its development as a field of study there is something that is lacking in the field of uh, islamic feminism because of course uh, if you see you know with islamophobia and orientalism right in north america i'm sure in australia also uh, muslim women have the same challenges uh, there is always a focus a primary focus on how muslim women bringing up their embodied expressions in public space right whether they're wearing hijab or not wearing hijab some people would be you know celebrating muslim women who are you know taking off their hijab some other people would be celebrating muslim women who are donning the hijab so it's like you know almost like um muslim women's body become the site of political struggles in north america in europe and uh, in places like australia but then that is just one side of muslim women's life and if islamic feminism as a field of study claiming to be a field of study that is global in its approach then it also needs to include other concerns 
that other people, other Muslim women in other parts of the world have. And this is what I see from, especially from my study of uh, Muslim migrant domestic workers, that actually this focus on the body of Muslim women doesn't really answer the challenges that they have. For example, a lot of Indonesian um, migrant domestic workers who work in the Gulf states, for example, they are already donning the hijab. They don't have any problem with, you know, um, wearing modest clothing. But still, when they are working in the Gulfs, they are being abused by their employers who are also Muslims. So, you know, the, the, the framework of Islamophobia and Orientalism that that is somehow work within the comparison of, you know, white colonial context with Islamic context, it doesn't work when it is being used to, uh, to, to try to comprehend the challenges that Muslim migrant domestic workers has, because their abuse doesn't come from Orientalist perspective. Their abuse come from classes and racist perspective, right? So people in the Gulf states, many of them would see our migrant domestic workers as less than human just because their social and economic class status is like at the lowest rung uh, in their society. So this is what I meant by, you know, let's just stop talking about the hijab, right? Because you can just talk about that focus on the body so much, but then we forget to talk about other aspects of uh, Muslim women's lives. So when we're talking about Islamic feminism in this particular context, Mm-hmm. How have you developed the theories um, or the ideas through that framework to build maybe a more comprehensive or a more inclusive way of thinking about the experience of experiences of Islamic women? How have you used this idea to broaden the perspective that we can have? And, and if we're not thinking about the hijab, which I think is something that that you've argued very eloquently we should do we should mm-hmm. move beyond to that what does mm-hmm. that actually look like for us what can they look at if not the hijab yes the core point right one core point that i always uh, kind of emphasizing in in my uh, work my scholarship is that agency has multiple forms agency doesn't always look the same in um, in different contexts because not only because of the individual politic is different but also because the form of patriarchal violence that women face all around the world are different and so we need to understand agency as something that that has almost like fluid quality to it because it is always in negotiation with the context in which the women live and also in the face of the the specific form of patriarchal violence that she is facing. For example, one thing that I found in my research in uh, Singapore is that Muslim migrant domestic workers there actually wearing hijab for empowerment. Empowerment meaning here that, you know, the the industry of uh, global care work actually doesn't want them to have identity or subjectivity, right? So if you see, you know, uh, if you see the the process 
of how these migrant domestic workers get trained and get sent uh, to the target countries. They are actually being processed to be a person without any subjectivity. Their hair will be cut short because femininity is not something that you can actually show because, you know, th there is this whole racist and sexist prototype that migrant domestic workers are actually stealing the husbands of the employers usually. So they, they are being turned into a sexual gender, you know, being in order to fit into the commodification process of care work. Now, the Muslim women, Muslim migrant domestic workers in Singapore, they actually don the hijab every weekend in Sunday when they have their days off. They would be like wearing this flowing, colorful and blinking hijabs. And it's like just a whole party in Singaporean streets. And whenever I ask them, like, why do you why do you do this? They would say that, well, because this is the day that I'm not working. I am not a helper today. I am me. So for them, instead of, you know, the body politics that becomes a focus of hijab in Western countries, for them, hijab is actually a, a, a means to claim their identity, to claim their subjectivity that has been erased by the uh, capitalist, uh, you know, production process, right? And that is also a form of agency. So I think what Islamic feminism offers is that, you know, various understandings that uh, agencies is actually something that's very fluid, it's multiple, um, and it's very negotiable within different contexts in women's life. I think that's such a lovely image as well, if you think for people who've been to Singapore and have been there on a Sunday. So your explanation sort of connecting the wearing of the colourful hijabs to an expression of agency and identity is something that I think a lot of people will really be able to to picture and it, and it will resonate with us. So thank you for sharing that particular explanation. I found that really useful. Um, I do want to turn now to... You've got a forthcoming article which um, mm -hmm. exploring experiences of quote unquote evil amongst women, women migrants working overseas from Indonesia, and particularly how their religious understandings and experience firstly shape their concepts of evil, but also their responses to it and, you know, their defences against it, I guess, in a word. So can you tell us a little bit more about this project and, and what you found doing the research in this particular area? Yeah, my um, article, which uh, will be coming out uh, sometimes next year as, uh, as a part of a, an edited collection in uh, theology and ethnography and Christian ethics, so that article is actually one of the major findings uh, in my research in, in Singapore. In theology, in the field of theology, the question of evil is, is one major uh, question, right? Uh, there's this term called theodicy, uh, which uh, refers to the ways believers kind of negotiate between the presence of evil, which is everywhere in our life, with the fact that they need to believe that God is the most benevolent and most powerful, you know, being in their life. So how do, you know, believers negotiate those two? 
uh, in theology, uh, the discussions of evil like this, the discussion of theodicy is somewhat philosophical. So it's, it's, um, it's very much, you know, uh, a claim that a scholar made and then it's, it's countered by an, another scholars and all of that. But in here, in, uh, in my research, um, I see the question of evil through the lenses of the female migrant workers, both Christian and also Muslim. And what I found is that there is actually a deep awareness among the migrant domestic workers, both Muslim and Christians, that evil is not actually something that is metaphysical. It is something that is socially and politically constructed they are aware that actually their oppression, um, the abuse that they are experiencing is not necessarily, you know, destiny from God, right? Or, or punishment from God, no. It's something that is rooted in the economic inequality, in a systemic poverty that send them to that country in the first place. But then on the other hand, they, they're also aware that they cannot do anything with their, you know, relative powerless situation and position as a migrant domestic workers in a foreign country. So usually, even though their awareness of evil is much more socially and historically rooted, the way they look for solution for that evil, answer to that evil, is mostly transcendence. It's mostly about divine help. So they will be saying things about, um, well, my my employers just cut my paycheck, you know, 50% less than what I receive um, usually in my, in my contract. But then I cannot do anything about it. I know that that's unjust. I know my right. And I know the, the amount that I need to, to accept, but I cannot do anything. So I just pray to my God in order to punish my employer. So there is this really interesting you know, connection between metaphysical um, and transcendental you know, awareness about their powerlessness so that the, the only one who can help them is only God. But then on the other hand, they also know that the problems that they're facing, the abuse, uh, the oppression is something that is historically constructed and socially rooted. So um, that is one of, uh, you know, parts of um, the finding of the article. And I think when, when it's out, you can, you can read it in, in full. Yeah, I think that reading your research and, and just thinking about the way that people connect religious ideas to the daily experiences that they that they have around them and and sometimes those experiences can be quite traumatic and negative it's really interesting because religion does fulfill a very important sort of psychological function in that instance isn't Mm -hmm. it like if you were to believe that these terrible things were just going to keep happening to you and there was absolutely no recourse and you had absolutely no power I imagine that that would be an extremely difficult situation to be in. Um, So having that sort of religion is, it's almost like a, a, having somebody in your corner who's going to, you know, not necessarily punish straight away, but (laughs) maybe down the line somewhere um, they'll, they'll get what they deserve. Feel very fortunate that I was able to read it early. Um, so we're we're almost out of time here, but I do want to just finish with one last question in terms of 
what's coming up next for you what kinds of projects do you have on the horizon and what kinds of publications have you got in the works that we can look forward to yeah uh thank you so um well right now i'm actually there is there's one deadline that i need to fulfill um it's um it's a chapter that i will co-write with uh, a colleague in singapore and another colleague in vienna and it's on um, the formation of interreligious spaces. It will be a part of a handbook uh, of um, geographies of religion or something like that. There is that. And then, of course, right now I'm uh, looking for a suitable, you know, publishing house uh, for my first book project, uh, which is uh, named Border Theologies. That's the concept that that I uh, propose uh, to understand the kind of religious narratives that the migrant domestic workers have in their lives. And um, I'm also um, actually in the next two weeks, on, on November 1st, I will be flying uh, back to Indonesia uh, to do one last uh, field work um, for my first book project and then also starting another field work for my second book project, which will have, um, it will be on, on the theme of environmental destruction in Indonesia and uh, the roles of religious discourse in it. Wow, that's fascinating, particularly if we think about what's happening with the new capital and yes. the <laughs> ways of um, of a natural environment that will be affected by that in the in the mm-hmm. name of development. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm I can't wait to read your first book and yeah. <laughs> you've already laid the foundations of anticipation for your second book as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So with that, I will wrap up the podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Laili, for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing about your research and I don't work in this space. So it's great to to have this one-on-one with you and to hear about mm-hmm. these issues from your research perspective. Thank you so much, Liz, for, for inviting me and, and for having me here. This has been a very uh, good conversation. I enjoy it. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. well thank you for joining me and that is the end of our podcast today for all of our listeners uh, we really appreciate your support so if you are a fan of talking indonesia you can certainly like and subscribe to us on all of the regular podcast channels and look forward to seeing you with our next episode thank you very much for joining me goodbye